when I meet with a creator who's pitching me, who's like, this show is going to be the next Fairly Odd Parents. I know it. It's so unique. There's no show like it. These are the reasons I'm the only creator that can make this. Then I'm hooked. You know, that's that's a huge selling point for me. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Isabel Balin always knew she wanted to be a creator, but it wasn't until she arrived at Bernard College and had the opportunity to intern at various networks and studios that she discovered her passion for finding independent voices. Now the director of development for Furtivator Studios, the company responsible for such hit shows as Adventure Time and Castlevania, Isabel finds herself in a position to discover, nurture, and champion creatives. We recently had the opportunity to speak with Isabel about the career advantage of internships, the changing landscape of adult animation, and how self-care is crucial to career development. Here's our conversation with Isabel Balin. Just going to get to know you a little bit better, which I'm very excited about, because I did meet up a little bit about you, but there isn't a whole lot about you on the internet yet. Well, you know, I'm a very, uh, I'm a very mysterious person, so uh, I... I have my sources to keep everything off the internet. I'm just <laughs> that sounds so nefarious. <laughs> no, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I've Googled myself before uh, and a couple things come up. I mean, Animation Magazine just did a article on me and, uh, and Kids Screen. So that was awesome, joining the company and having a few people reach out saying, hey, I just saw, you know, that you had joined the company. It's so exciting. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I've had some interviews from my alma mater. So there's a couple YouTube bar nerd specific interviews about my history and professional life. Um, and apart from that, yeah, there's not too much else to, I guess, uh, post about on online. <laughs> well, I disagree. And I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about, um, you know, what you were like as a kid. Like, did you grow up in New York or did you end up there for school? So I grew up in Connecticut mm. for 10 years in Westport. And then we moved for high school near New Haven to a town called Woodbridge. And then I went to college in New York City at Barnard College and never left. So I've been in the city pretty much for I think almost nine years now. Oh, and wow. It's been awesome. I, I love the city. It's just a place I am very comfortable with and have met some awesome people. So it's hard for me to imagine leaving, but it's also freezing in New York right now. So uh, there's more motivation these days. <laughs> <laughs> what were you like as a kid growing up in Connecticut? Like, what were you into? Well, I was always a TV buff. I would be watching cartoons constantly you know, Rugrats and Fairly Odd Parents. So it's kind of a dream to be at the company that produced Fairly Odd Parents. Um, and I was very fun and dancey. I feel like my my strongest memories are I was in seventh grade and I got my first laptop and my parents videotaped me just dancing on the floor. Uh, and I'm one of three girls. I'm the youngest. So I was always meant to be a creative. There's no doubt in that. Uh but, you know, my background's in comedy, and I always grew up watching comedies, so uh, that's a big part of my identity. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask you about that, because your career does seem very much to um, kind of straddle both comedy and animation, almost from the get-go. And so I'm curious, like, when you were growing up, did you have any sort of, you know, you had an inkling you, that you wanted to be a creator or a creative, but did you have any idea what that might look like for you? You know, I grew up in a family of artists, so I have an uncle who's a writer, another uncle who's an actor, an aunt who was a casting director at CBS for many years. So I grew up in a very creative family and knew I wanted to be in the entertainment industry in what capacity I wasn't so sure when I was younger. I thought maybe an actress or a comedian, but um, working in several casting office during my internships at Barnard, I realized it's a really, really tough world to be on you know, in front of the camera. And I really enjoyed working with creators, um, you know, during my internship. So I found that I would do better 
basically consulting for a show, you know, working with the artists on their scripts, on their decks, preparing the materials. And um, I think it's, you know, it's always funny to look back at what you thought you would do when you were younger. Um, but I always loved television and, you know, cartoons and just, they always had such a soft spot for me. So working within that field is just a dream come true, honestly. So, you know, you, you kind of had this idea that you wanted to work in a creative industry. What landed you at Barnard? So my grandma actually went to Barnard and um, I'd always been interested in going to school in a city and New York City is not very far from Connecticut. So I didn't feel too far from the family. Um, and for me, a big draw was the fact that Barnard was like a smaller community of women that you could just completely be yourself and learn so much from in a larger playground with Columbia University. So if Barnard didn't have, you know, a subject that I was really interested in, Columbia did, or if Columbia didn't, Barnard did. So it was just really appealing to have so much opportunity within the school in terms of subject and also the ability to intern, which I think set me apart as an applicant when I was looking for full-time jobs, because I ended up with seven internships by the time that I graduated. So it was an awesome way to enter the industry, having contacts, getting to know folks in New York already, and setting myself apart from other students. That's really interesting. One of I, I had never considered the the idea of the internship as sort of clearly it's a, it's designed as a way into you know sort of find your way in the industry and maybe make some contacts. But the fact that it puts you so far ahead, can you, was that something that was that was a conscious decision for you when you went to the college that you know this would be a great way to sort of test the waters and maybe get a better sense of what you wanted to really do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my first internship was at Women's Project Theater and I grew up performing in shows all the time in school and camp and uh, always loved performing. So it was a great opportunity for me to see a very female centric theater, you know, working on some awesome plays and, and getting to really get a better understanding of theater in New York City. And I definitely loved it. Um, but thought, you know, maybe I should look into the networks and see if I can learn about casting. And so I worked at, I worked at CBS for a semester and then I met a writer at the Ellen show and he was like, you should intern here. So then I was there for the summer, um, came back, worked at Nickelodeon in their casting department and then went abroad, which was great. I was in Italy. It was one of my majors. I was a sociology Italian double major um, so nothing to do with entertainment, but I got a lot of my experience from internships and then came back from Italy or to Telsey and Company, which is another casting office. They've done major shows like Hamilton and um, and then ended up at Saturday Night Live for my senior year internship, which uh, was just spectacular. It was the year that Trump was elected. So, of course, the writers were having a ball and uh, and it gave me a really good sense that I I wanted to be in the comedy world, whether that was late night, I wasn't so sure. I really loved it. Um, but I also loved developing content. I wrote in college in several screenwriting classes. So I thought maybe that would be a route. Um, but the best advice I got was work at a talent agency or a management company when you graduate, if you want to be in the industry, because it does set you apart when you're applying for jobs. You know, it's understood that, you know, the ins and outs of the business of entertainment. So I worked at CIA for two years in the TV alt department, and then also assisting a bit in the theater and scripted comedy department. Um, and it was a great experience. I was very, very lucky. I got paired with an agent who is truly a gem of a woman and realized I, I loved more of the scripted world versus unscripted and came back to NBC and worked for the president of strategy and commercial growth for a year. And then there was an opportunity to work um, with sci-fi on an Adele animation block called TZGZ, which are the letters after S-Y-F-Y, creating adult animation for sci-fi to compete with Adult Swim. Uh, and it was an awesome, awesome job and truly, I think, was the catalyst for working within animation comedy development. And so uh, all of those experiences really led me to where I am now. Uh, I just want to backtrack just a little bit back sure. to your sort of college life. And, and you, you speak a little bit about how you were getting all of this advice from various people. I'm wondering if you had, was there 
um, somebody that you looked up to or a mentor that was kind of guiding you through or helping you make some decisions on what you sh maybe should try or some of the best practices? Absolutely. So Barnard has a mentorship program that I absolutely loved. I was paired with a couple folks, one in particular, Sarah Weinstein Dennison, who worked at RCA Records for a very long time um, as their VP of publicity, was super influential in my decision making in terms of internships and you know, honing in on what I was really interested in doing. And so we we became a lot closer. And when I was at CIA, I was speaking to her a little bit about what I want to do next. And that was really the beginnings of, you know, what do I see myself doing for the next 10 years, 15 years, that sort of thing. Um, and the awesome thing about CIA is you're exposed to so many different departments and, you know, creatives that it gives you a better idea of what areas you could be most interested in. That's really amazing. Um, I was wondering about that mentorship program as well. Um, do you just work with one mentor or did you have numerous mentors that you were working with? So in various semesters, you get paired with one. So let's say you applied for the you know spring semester mentorship program, you'd get paired with one mentor who works in your field. Mm -hmm. uh, it may or may not be exactly, you know, animation development, but it certainly can be, you know, music or theater uh, and somebody who they just believe will be a strong mentor to you and have a lot of experience to share with you uh, so that when you're applying full-time jobs, you have a better idea of your interest levels and uh, the areas that, you know, your experience might fit best. I think it's really wonderful that you have this opportunity to not only work with different mentors, but also um, sort of test the waters and kind of get a feel for what's out there in the, in the industry that you're going into and kind of hone in on the work that you really want to do. It feels like it really gives you a step up in, in your career. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of those internships and what, what did you learn um, at, say, uh, your first job at CBS that would sort of like carried you into your next internship and so forth down? Like if there were like a, just a handful of, of things that you learned on the job, per se, that, that really have stayed with you, what would some of those things be? So in my first internship, which was at Women's Project Theater, mm. I learned a lot about the ins and outs of a production and how you're reliant on not only the actors, but the director and the producers and the vision and the set and the design and so many components that really create a show and that it's a huge collaboration, which I loved. Um, at CBS, I, I really learned that, you know, there's so much talent in the world. I saw actors on actors coming in for various roles. And it's just so wonderful to see the way that different people interpret a script, you know, and, and that was really exciting for me to, to understand. Um, and then bringing that, you know, to the Ellen show, I found that, you know, production is its own beast. Absolutely. And, you know, was able to work on the heads up game show, which was very fun. Uh, but it was a lot of, you know, back end work, you know, making sure that we have uh, the the research behind, you know, one of our segments and being able to log that for the producers. And so that was a lot of what my job consisted of. And then getting to Nickelodeon, I found really two wonderful mentors, Lisa Rochette and Danielle Pretzfelder, uh, who basically took me under their wing and taught me how to be an assistant as an intern, which was amazing because it really helped me in my first job at CAA after college, understand, you know, the importance of details and the way that you communicate with creators and especially working with kids, you know, at Nickelodeon, I'm seeing kids come in for parts and reading for them and, and understanding their, you know, methods. And, and that was amazing. Um, and then working at Telsey and company, you know, seeing the casting side on, on the Broadway end was just really exhilarating. And, you know, I grew up going to Broadway shows, at least three, actually, every Thanksgiving. And so that was a big part of my my life. And I was able to, you know, just see these really profoundly talented casting directors audition some of the biggest talent in New York. So that was amazing. Um, and then... And then when I got Saturday Night Live, which truly was the biggest dream of my life, um, 
it was an opportunity for me to see an environment where everything is fast paced and you have to be on your toes. And my background in college was in improv. I took all the UCB improv classes and started an improv group called Third Wheel Improv. Uh, and that training actually helped me a lot at SNL because, you know, you're constantly getting new asks of you, you know, we'll have writers reach out and say, Hey, can you look this up for me? Or, you know, Hey, I really need coffee. I'm desperate, <laughs> you know? And so you just had to stay on your feet. Um, and you know, be enthusiastic. That's a big, a big piece of all of my internships that I learned was, you know, no task is too small, be enthusiastic, be present, show that you're, you know, there for a reason, you know, and what you can provide them is, is key because then they'll remember you. And, and when you're looking for a full-time job, you know, they can refer you to things. And uh, it's really just all about the people also is what I learned. You know, you want to work in an environment where the people are just kind and welcoming and want to, to help you learn, you know. Never miss another episode of your favorite podcast. Search for The Sparkcast wherever you get your podcasts and then hit follow or subscribe to be notified of new updates. Your entire sort of internship and school life, you, you've been kind of working behind the scenes, but you've also been doing, you know, performance. You talk a little bit about um, your improv troupe. Have you, was there ever, or have you, have you felt the need to like, create as well um not just sort of produce but actually like get in front of the audience yeah so i was lucky enough to join a production called xmas at columbia which is a take on christmas written by students at the school and i played april fools we were all like different characters like the easter bunny and um, it was a very 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 fun experience and i did that several times actually i was in uh another show with hillel on campus and um, auditioned for all the acapella groups. I really do love performing and I think that's what makes it so fun to work in the development side of television is seeing, you know, when you read through a script, I can easily visualize what it will look like, you know, and the performances. And I do think performance actually can make or break a show. You know, a voice actor has the same responsibility as a stage actor. You have to show within your voice, you know, the excitement and the and the frustration and the, you know, happiness and, uh, you know, various emotions through your voice, which is its own beast, of course. Um, but I think having that performance background really helps me in my current role. Yeah, and, and it seems like all of the, the, the jobs and all of the work that you've done over the course of your of your student and career has really, um, it gives you sort of like an overall look at the entire process of creating anything, not just animation, but sort of anything for any sort of screen or consumption, which I think is really fascinating because it's not often that you get kind of like the full the full spectrum from, you know, the writing process right through to casting and, and, and performance. Right. Absolutely. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your, you know, your first sort of job as, you know, a producer of sorts at Sci-Fi. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, getting that position and then what that, how you started to sort of put that, uh, that job together? Absolutely. So I interviewed for three months. It was a long process, oh, wow. but it was so worth it. I started in October of 2019 working with two amazing executives, Zach Wiles and John Cotton. And essentially the president of USA Sci-Fi at the time was Chris McCumber. And he wanted to create a, an opportunity for Sci-Fi to compete with Adult Swim in that we would pull our resources to create adult animation and I have to say it was such a, a kismet moment because I'd always wanted to work in adult animation. I am a huge fan of the Big Mouths and the Bob's Burgers and the Family Guys and thought this was such a great opportunity for NBC to get their foot into, into this in, part of the industry. So we worked on 10 shows, five pilots and five series within two years during COVID nonstop. You know, we had to figure out 
how to record our actors, which was our biggest struggle, you know, sending mics to their, to their homes and them finding a closet that was quiet enough to, you know, have them do the records. And it was hilarious and fun. And, you know, our, our creators and our writers were just so talented that our job was easy in that we, you know, once we were able to find the project and, and find the people we wanted to work with, it, it became just such a fun experience to build out new worlds and and come up with new designs and backgrounds for these shows. And, um, you know, it was just a dream job, honestly. And being able to do it from New York, being a New Yorker was, you know, the cherry on top. I'm, I'm curious about the fact that you were doing this the entire time that COVID was happening. Because, I mean, it, it's one thing to start a position like this in regular times, but now you have this added challenge. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because it sounds like it was a fairly new position anyways. And now you're straddled with this extra challenge of, well, you know, you can't really meet anybody in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. What was great about it was that the the animation block had already begun just a little bit with John and Zach. Mm. So there was a bit of a foundation. We had acquisitions already on our slate, which was fantastic. And I had about, you know, six months before the pandemic to get to know them and really understand our mandate and get to meet with the executives. And, and then when COVID hit, you know, we, we took a beat much like everyone did and really thought about how we were going to continue but we were so lucky. I mean, animation, as I'm sure you know, has only grown during the pandemic. Live action was really affected because, you know, when you're in person and you have to get tested every day. And first of all, at that point, we didn't know what it was. Mm. So it was very scary, you know. And for animation, what was great is we were given the opportunity to work with talent that we may or may not have had the opportunity to work with because of COVID. Mm. You know, a lot of those actors had movies they were about to start or you know, TV shows they were about to film and couldn't go, you know, it was postponed. So when we had a show that we needed to cast, we had a wide array of talent that we could go to who we knew were available because of COVID. So there were a lot of advantages actually for animation during this time. And, you know, we, we were able to work with Lindsay Lohan and Christine Baranski and Alan Tudyk, some of the, you know, top tier talent. Uh, to just make our show that much more powerful and exciting and uh, unique, which I thought was fantastic. But of, of course, you know, it's it's a weird transition to go from working in person to fully remote. Um, so, you know, it was, it was definitely a period of, okay, what are we doing now? Uh, but as a team, we were able to figure it out fairly quickly. I speak with a lot of creators, so the folks that are actually making the stuff. And so it's it's really uh, fun to be able to ask you about some of the behind the scenes of, you know, what it's like from the side of the production team. I was curious if we could talk a little bit about um, the process of, you know, finding the right show for the right network. I mean, I know it changes depending on, um, you know, what all your target audience is and even the network that you're pitching to, you know, everyone's looking for something slightly different. But in the case of the projects that you've worked on, what, what does like what does that actually like look like on a practical level? Like, are you looking at scripts all the time? Are you out there um, looking at things outside of the animation world to try to find like that new voice? What does that look like for you? Absolutely. So at NBC, we had a very specific mandate at sci-fi. It was weird, raunchy, adult comedic animation, you know, 11 minute episodes, quarter hour. We were, you know, reaching out to agencies to let them know we were doing this. You know, we were reaching out to creators that we'd worked with before. Uh, writers would find us and submit scripts and decks. And, and that really was a huge component of my position was going through these materials and understanding which really fit our mandate and which, you know, were great ideas, but weren't sci-fi enough or didn't have that comedic element we were looking for. And so really the projects that stood out to us were directly fitting our mandate and the voices we really wanted to, you know, put forward. We had a show called Magical Girl Friendship Squad, which was a all-female-led team 
you know, the writers and, and the creators had this vision based off of a previous series they created and wanted to reboot it with sci-fi. And it was just exactly in the realm that we were looking for. Um, we had another project created by Doug Goldstein called Devil May Care, which was just so hilarious. His writing is some of the best I've, I've read in a long time. And, you know, it's all about the devil hiring a social media coordinator from earth to rebrand hell. You know, it's such a unique idea and the characters were so just, we wanted to spend so much time with them. And, and from that experience, I, I really brought that into my work now at Frederator. We love character driven comedies. You know, we want to follow the characters from seasons to seasons and, and just be their best friends, you know, and care about them on another level. And I think that's, a hard thing to find when you're reading submissions, you know, you often get very similar ideas or you have something already on your slate that is very similar to a project you really like, or it's too similar to what already exists out there. You know, we're, we're excited about kids animation. We always have been, but now we're getting into the adult animated side. And so what does that look like? And what do, you know, those buyers look for? And, and you're right. It changes constantly what the mandates are for various networks and streamers. So it is hard to put together a slate of projects where you really know they will sell because anything can happen and anything, you know, can change with their mandates. So we really focus in on projects that we're really excited about that we think you know, audiences will love sci-fi was male skewing and, you know, in an older demographic. So we had to play to those, to those folks, but we also really wanted to expand that to, you know, have more of a female voice and a younger audience. So we really worked on finding projects that could do that. You know, at Frederator, we're able to present to executives in the preschool group and the six to 11 group and the teen group and the adult animation group were, were, given the opportunity to find projects within these different age groups that are unique and haven't been seen yet and, and showcase voices that we want to hear from, you know, we're very, very focused on diversity and inclusion and LGBT community and the trans community. We want to be finding projects that are universal, you know, and people can relate to it on all levels. It, it seems like the move to Fritter for you has really been um, a great move because it's given you more of an opportunity to kind of expand what's available in the world of animation. Absolutely. Yes. We, we are lucky in that we can, you know, as an independent studio, produce really amazingly unique programs for all different age groups and all different kinds of people. And um, you know, we've also made shows in addition to Fairly Odd Parents and Adventure Time, shows like Castlevania, which are, you know, older skewing and darker and have a different look in terms of the animation. And, and that's really exciting because, you know, so much of what we're seeing now, at least from the buyers, there is somewhat of a focus on existing IP and creating shows off of existing IP. And so what that means is it's harder for us to pitch original ideas because, mm -hmm these buyers really are focused on an audience that already exists. You know, that's why Arcane is doing so brilliantly on Netflix. Not only is it gorgeous and, you know, the script is beautiful, but it also is based off of another property, you know, and, and the video game is extremely, you know, popular. And so there's a cult following and, and so there's reason for the executives at those companies to invest in, you know, projects like that. Does that make your job harder to try to, uh, you know, give voice to uh, content that's not already a known commodity? You know, it's definitely swayed our outreach. I think knowing what the buyers are really focused on, you can't ignore that. You know, you want to sell a show, of course. So mm -hmm. you have to adhere to those mandates. But at the same time, we have many originals that we're just really excited about that we know audiences will love and we're invested in those. So, you know, despite those mandates being a little constraining, we, we continue to work on projects we're really passionate about as well. It's really interesting though, because even within the, the world of, you know, that pre-known commodity, Arcane is still quite different than, you know, the video game. So there is still room for um, like expanding the universe and kind of delving deep and telling personal stories uh, within a known, a, a known entity already. 
Absolutely. You know, there is so much interpretation that you can do on IP. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that's what these buyers are looking for. They want something that already has that audience, but let's find another take, you know, let's think about it in a different way and, you know, focus on maybe a different character for the show. Uh, one that maybe didn't have as big of a part as the main lead, but is really compelling and uh, versatile and, uh, you know, someone that you can relate to. So that's been really exciting to see in terms of just what's out there right now. For for you as someone that's always looking for something new and interesting, what does that look like for you? Like, are you getting a script? What are you, what specifically are you looking for in those projects that are being pitched? Um, what does it look like from your side of things? Yeah. So we accept all forms of material. So some people even come to us with, you know, a one pager, an idea. And if we're really excited about it, we'll develop it out with them, you know, and if the creator is really just somebody that we want to work with, you know, that's not a deterrent, but oftentimes we do get, you know, scripts that are already written or decks that are already made or both. And for us, it's really about the character driven, you know, it being very character driven, the comedy really coming through and, you know, do we want to follow these characters for a while? You know, that's, that's what draws folks to a show is, oh God, I really miss hanging out with Rick and Morty. You know, I, I want to get back to that. Uh, and I think for us, you know, that's a model show where we're, we're understanding of its popularity because of the characters and because of the comedy and the adventures that they get themselves into. For you specifically, I'm curious, what what does your day look like? How do you go through your days? Like, do you, do you spend a certain amount of time doing your readings? How do you prepare for your days? I expect that you probably go through a lot of material and that could be really difficult. Yeah, we're, we're constantly reading submissions, um, which I love. You know, for me, getting to read a creator's idea for a show is so fun. I mean, what I feel like anybody would love that type of job, which is great. You know, it's really, it's really uh, humbling uh, to see just such talent out there. And I'd say day to day, I'm meeting with writers and creators and executives, learning about their mandates and um, getting a better sense of what we have on our slate and working on our current development slate, you know, and, and getting those projects to a very strong place so that we can go out to market and sell them. Um, but also having, you know, internal meetings and really gathering, you know, what Frederator is looking for as a brand. Um, but it really varies day to day. I mean, today I'm being interviewed on a podcast and tomorrow I have a meeting with a, you know, an executive at Amazon. It's, it's different every day. Like when you take home a script, let's say, uh, you've mentioned that you're looking for characters that are, uh, you know, relatable and that you could see sort of long-term uh, storytelling. Um, but for you specifically, what what really appeals to you when you're reading a script? What, what do you think are some best practices for folks that might be looking to pitch an idea? Curious to see what you think are sort of the best the best way to approach it. You know, I think it's, really helpful if you're making an original show to relate to it yourself. If the creator is very distant from the characters or doesn't really have experience in that, you know, world in terms of just, I guess, you know, seeing shows similarly to the one you're thinking about, or, you know, I think there needs to be a relatability from the creator to their own material. Those are the strongest projects. You know, if you are the only person that can make this show, the buyer is so much more interested and invested in your materials Hmm. because it's so unique to you. So that's one thing I would say is really important. I think discoverability is a big thing we're finding right now. So, you know, if it's based on a specific IP that many people know of and your script is, is similar to it and, and takes another stab at what that could look like as a TV show, that's really exciting. Um, And I think also just genuinely having enthusiasm for what you're working on you know when we're in pitch meetings sometimes there are creators that are you know a bit shy presenting their work and you just need to be confident in what you have you know that's a huge component when I meet with a creator who's pitching me who's like this show is going to be the next fairly odd parents I know it it's so unique there's no show like it these are the reasons I'm the only creator that can make this then I'm hooked you know that's that's a huge selling point for me. 
That's so awesome. I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, the shift in specifically in adult animation, because over the last number of years, it seems to have really um, become a bigger, a bigger, a much bigger thing. And with all of the content that you're going through looking for that next big hit, I'm curious about one, what you think where is the industry going? Like, what are some of the, the sort of the key changes that you see going forth? Clearly, visual style seems to be a big thing. There seems to be much more um, a wider berth of uh, of appeal for folks. But what, where do you think that that the 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 overall adult animation is going in the future? You know, it's really exciting, I think, because there are now departments that are solely focused on creating adult animation for their network or streamer. And that has never happened within the, I mean, five years ago, we didn't have that. So mm-hmm. I think COVID actually helped a lot with that. I know that's crazy to say, but, you know, the ability to make animation during a time where you have to be remote is not now that hard to imagine because so many people have done it. So what I think is really going to happen in the future i think there are going to be more and more adult animated shows i hope to see more female uh women of color you know producing shows because as much as i love dan Harmon's work it's it's a lot of white dudes (laughs) is the truth you know creating this adult animation and and there needs to be some diversity there needs to be other voices so I'm, i'm hopeful that we can get more women in the space um executives wise i've seen a lot of women take leadership roles within adult animation. And that really excites me because, you know, coming from NBC, it's, uh, it's, it's just rare to, to see a lot of women in animation. And, and that's not to say that there aren't many, but at least with adult animation, it's more apparent. And, um, you know, they're always, you know, these buyers are always looking for the next family guy, Rick and Morty, you know, Simpsons. They always want these adult comedic comedies. You know, it's just, it's just always going to be wanted. But what's interesting is because of this existing IP focus, you know, there are also these departments that want comic book driven adult animation or, uh, you know, video game based adult animation. And so it's a question of, okay, can you get the rights first of all? And if you do, you know, do you have the writer that's, you know, really that knows this property well enough to create a show based on it? And that's really difficult. So We'll see if in the future there'll be a focus on existing IP as much as there is now. I'm hopeful that originals will come back into focus for for some of these buyers and streamers. But um, in the meantime, that's something we're we're seeing a lot of. As as a woman in a in a position where you're sort of a gatekeeper um, to adult animation, do you personally find it's do you feel responsible for trying to find that, that, that those female voices and giving and those diverse voices and giving them a platform? Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I work so far in my career in animation, I've only worked with men, at least in my departments. Uh, so for me, it's a huge responsibility. I am constantly thinking about, you know, female creators, um, women of color, you know, trans, LGBT folks, like I want voices that have not been given a chance to create in this specific niche of adult animation. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but I, I do think that there's so much talent out there and, you know, we're constantly looking for new ways to find that talent, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram, you know, on YouTube, we're, we're finding there's so much out there. And that's what's so wonderful about the internet is that you can find creators that you never would have, if not for that, you know? So I definitely feel a responsibility, but I also love that I have this, you know, focus that isn't female oriented because I can make it more female oriented. It's almost like uh, a fun responsibility to have because, you know, I really look it up to, you know, folks that have already made their career, uh, you know, very adult animated focused. And I think, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for us to have more of a voice and, you know, it'll, it'll definitely, I hope be a big part of, of the future of animation, but, you know, folks like Marcy Proietto at, 20th animation she has dedicated her career to adult animation and she was one of the first absolutely you know as a woman to focus on properties like family guy and the simpsons so it's awesome to see that and and 
grow towards that. You know, that is something that I, I've looked up to her for a long time. So, um, you know, there's a, there's an opportunity there for sure. I'm curious, you know, you, you talk a little bit about how you can find new voices everywhere. And I can only imagine that your brain is always looking for the next best thing. So I'm curious, how do you unplug? I mean, you know, a lot of us will watch, you know, TV, animation, uh, will watch YouTube videos to unplug from the real world. But I, I, is it hard for you to unplug when everything is sort of like a potential new project? I would say yes, you know, but that's a good thing. I feel like if your job is something you would want to do to unplug, what a great thing, you know? So I watch a lot of, you know, comedies and I watch not only animation, but scripted. I, I love scripted. So I'll always think about like who has a really interesting voice when I'm watching scripted. So I can be like, they would be great, you know, to cast in our, in our animated series. Um, you know, a lot of my unwinding, I guess, comes from my family and friends and, and my fiance. You know, I go out of my way to get out of the apartment now since we're all trapped inside one um, and go to dinner and see shows and go ice skating and, and really, you know, get off of my phone. I think that's a hard thing to do is when you work in an industry that's, uh, you know, so screen oriented <laughs> that it is hard to disconnect. But I always make an effort to, I think it's really important to have work-life balance because there, there is more to a job in this world. And I think, you know, this is a larger conversation, but, um, as a society, especially in America, you know, it's all about the grind, you know, it's who, how can you get promoted and how can you keep growing and make more money and, you know, have the American dream. And I think it gets lost that there's so much more to life, you know, than, than just your job. There's, you know, making a family and traveling and seeing the world and understanding other cultures and people. And for me, that's something I'll never forget. Well, and I, I think you touched on something really important. And that's this idea that, you know, all of that feeds into the job anyways. I mean, le being able to, to um, experience the world only makes um, you as a, a creative individual richer. Absolutely. No, no question in my mind. I mean, the ability to understand other cultures and people and bring that into a series is essential now. You know, buyers are actually looking for that specifically. They don't want to hear from the same five people that have created adult animation for the last 10 years. You know, they want new voices. And I think I'm in a position now where I can give those voices a platform, which is really exciting. That's so awesome. Uh, how do you... Uh... You know, we talked a little bit about unwinding and I'm curious, you know, with this, the fact that we're all kind of like locked down and in, in this place where we need to get out to, to sometimes clear our heads. How do you plan your day? Do you, do you like, um, do you have a to-do list? Do you plan something like the night before? How do you sort of plan ahead for, for your day uh, to be able to, you know, do all the work that you need to do, but also to make some time for yourself? Absolutely. You know, I am very organized about my calendar. <laughs> I'm making, you know, meetings happen weeks prior, setting up, you know, certain hours for me to have time to review submissions. I think it's important, especially when we're constantly having Zoom meetings to mm. separate time throughout, you know. If I'm having four meetings a day, I might do them back to back. I might separate them if I have a lot of submission work to do. Um, you know, I might dedicate the morning to meeting with a couple buyers and then later in the afternoon, you know, working on our current development slate and really polishing a, a deck, that sort of thing. So uh, it just, it varies day to day, but I think it's always in my mind, you know, okay, get up from the computer, take a walk, even if it's around the apartment, if you can't get outside, uh, you know, stretch a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm very guilty of leaning over my computer and my posture is, uh, sadly the result of that. Um, but I am very cognizant of taking time and, you know, understanding your own mental health and your limits. I think that's something we need to talk about way, way more in all industries, uh, is just, you know, if, if it's overwhelming, if it's too much, take a beat you know, start breathing in a very specific controlled way. Um, and, you know, 
And, and that really helps a lot in terms of my work is getting my mind to a really calm and focused place. How do you, you know, it, considering that now we're not in an office where we're, we're, you know, bumping into people and, and having those conversations that are more casual, um, but how, how do you sort of um, track how your creators are doing? Um, do you check in with them on a, on a regular basis? Um, do you have, you know, Zoom calls or just telephone calls? I'm curious how you're dealing with, with that part of it. You know, that's a great question. We we have meetings consistently with our current development creators. Um, we, you know, always start with how are you and, and are real about that, not just like, how are you? Good. You know, we're like, okay, are you in a good place to work on the next draft of the script? You know, do you think this is solid enough for you to have a foundation to go off of? Um, and I think it varies, obviously, from person to person, but we're very realistic about timelines. And I think that's really important when you're working with creators to not say, you know, we need this within a week. Uh, otherwise we're not gonna get this out. You know, then the product's not gonna be as good. And for us, we are so, so focused on putting our best foot forward and amplifying voices that have not been amplified before. So we don't rush, you know, we take our time with our materials. Uh, that way, when we're going out to market, we're really confident with what we have. Uh, to that end, do you do you have like um, a sort of like game plan for what how long it takes to from the time that you you know discover an idea or discover somebody to the time where you're actually ready to go to market? Do you is there a, like an approximate timeline or does that shift wildly depending on the project and who you're working with? I would say it shifts pretty wildly on the project and who we're working with, just because there are some creators who have a lot of experience you know, and can write really quickly and succinctly and know their show in and out. And then there are some creators that come to us with just an idea and they're like, I want to explore this, but I don't really know what it looks like. But I have this awesome YouTube channel that I'm psyched about and it's getting great views and I want to make a show based off me. And, you know, then we're like, great, let's do that, you know, and it will take time. And, you know, a, a lot of the creators may or may not have created shows before. So it really varies. I'd say, you know, from when we get a project, it could be, four months, it could be six months, it could be eight months, uh, you know, getting the materials prepared. But typically, we really try um, to to turn out our materials in a way that's not only going to be appealing to the buyers, but a way that's going to be really fulfilling for the creators. You know, we don't want there ever to be an, op you know, an experience where we're rushing somebody and it's, you know, the product is not what the creator really wanted in the end. Um, we're very creator driven as well. And um, I think that speaks to our shows. I know that we talked a little bit about how you unwind, and I'm curious if there's anything that that's out there right now that you're particularly excited about that you would say to people, you, everybody needs to watch this <laughs> or listen to this or read this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've really been enjoying Hilda. I think that show is just really cute and brilliant. Um, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I'm rewatching Avatar The Last Airbender just because it's brought up in so many pitches and there's such a love of it that I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Um, you know, I think we're always just looking for new voices. So like sometimes I'll find, you know, an animator on TikTok that I think is just really smart and creative and reach out to them and say, you know, this is really interesting and unique. You know, have you ever thought of making this into a TV show? And, and then the conversation begins. So um, you know, there are some really exciting projects out there. And I think the fact that there's such a focus on animation is, is amazing. Is there a project out there that you kind of, you look at and you're like, you know, I wish I'd been a part of that. I mean, Rick and Morty gets brought up <laughs> constantly. It's wild how, how much people love that show. I mean, that's a really great one. I think if I personally were to say, you know, this Adele animated show is like top notch for me. I think Big Mouth is brilliant. Mm -hmm. The creators, are, you know, have an improv background, a comedy background, very similar to mine. So I, I look up to, you know, the John Mulaney's of the world, the Nick Krolls. Um, so that's a show that I love, you know, Bob's Burgers. Linda is like my spirit animal. Oh, me too. I'm, I love that show on like another level. <laughs> It's just so brilliant and the kids are so funny and the voice actors are so talented. Like there's so many things that um, just stand out to me in those shows. Mm -hmm. And I understand now why Bob's Burgers is being made into a movie and I cannot wait for that. You know, it's, 
it's those shows that really stand out. Um, but then what's been really interesting is that all of these shows that are creating animated versions of a live action show that mm. happened several times during the pandemic, either due to COVID issues or, or just because they wanted to try it out. Like the boys is making an entirely mm. animated series, which I think is such a fun idea. And kind of what I was speaking to in terms of the buyers wanting an animated show based off an existing IP, you know, that's case in point, you know? So, um, it's exciting to see that, you know, the world is just constantly wanting more animation. Do you think it's, it's, um, it's, it's more difficult for um, uh, the networks to take chances on animated content, or is it more difficult for them to take chances on live action content? You know, the thing about live action that is different than animation is that you need the cast to be mm-hmm. really star studded people. That's the, you know, that's the thing when I envision shows that are uh, less cast oriented in terms of what I mean by that is um, the actors don't necessarily need to be a Brad Pitt or a Angelina Jolie, you know, it can be newer voices. It can be um, actors that you've never heard of before, but are so talented. You know, that's something that you see less. So I feel like in the live action, like there needs to be one person that's going to make you go see the show, which is crazy because there are so much talent so much, so much talent out there that it's, it's, it's doing a disservice. I feel like to live action, but with animation, you know, we can work with people that have truly never been heard of before, but their voice talent is wild, you know, and I've worked with top tier talent, um, in the space who, whose sole job has been voiceover acting. And then I've worked with people that have truly never had experience before, but can do a million voices. And for me, that's like, just insane that they are they have the ability to change into these different personas so quickly and so easily so um i think that's something that stands out to me a lot and that was our conversation with isabel balin director of development for frederator studios you can find out more about isabel and frederator at frederator.com The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.